Hello, listeners. Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator. I'm all about capturing and curating career and life stories as a meaningful way to celebrate a milestone moment like a big old birthday, anniversary, retirement, or graduation. And I'm at my best when curating photo books that move your memories from the basement or your phone or your computer to the coffee table, giving you and your family and friends access to these treasured memories for years to come. I also love curating and capturing life and career stories through this podcast series, How Did I Get Here? It's a series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, people in transition or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to the stories of people who have been there, done that, so that they might be inspired with some new ideas or maybe just comforted knowing they are not alone, that everybody starts somewhere and everybody goes through times of transition and times when they feel stuck. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Amy Friel. Welcome, Amy. Hello. And I met Amy through the Wise Women Group, and uh, we've become good friends there and very excited that she wanted to do an interview today. And Amy is a program leader at a health tech startup company where she's in charge of member engagement. We're going to pause for a moment to hear from a very happy Life Story Curator client. I'm a client of Life Story Curator, and I reached out to Kathy to do my husband's 50th birthday book. Um, And I chose to use Kathy because I've seen her work and, of course, I've known her for a long time. And I knew that the product would be way above a standard Um, I've done books myself, and um, I knew that she would do an exemplary job. The process um, working with Kathy is very organized, and we started off with interviewing me, um, coming up with a deeper analysis of who my husband is, and through that process, we came up with things I would never thought of on my own with just her asking certain questions. It triggered memories and special things that really added a great deal of value um, when we went to put the book together. And and I hadn't, again, I hadn't remembered all these things when I first talked to her about it. So having that interview was great. And when my husband opened the book on his birthday, he was um, nervous, of course, at first, and then very excited and um, quite emotional. Um, you know, that he's, he's from New Zealand. And so having family represented from so far away in this book was really, really special. And I know that family and friends from afar were pleased to be able to be part of this process. Um, and I couldn't have done, you know, half the job that Kathy did, particularly in the time frame. And it was just beautifully presented and she captured him very well and and she helped me sort of narrow down the focus and the amount of photos and uh, it it couldn't have been any better. So Amy, uh, before we get into what all of that means and what all that's doing, uh, I always like to start with the icebreaker questions. So if you would tell us uh, where you grew up, what part of the country or the world and where you were in birth order in your family and how you think kind of those two things influenced you. Yeah, uh, well, thrilled to be here, Kathy, and I love this question. I am the oldest of three sisters, and I have, uh, I definitely have an older sister personality. You know, I was the responsible one, I was the babysitter, and my sisters still give me a hard time because of the way I manage them when my parents uh, left us. Um, so, um, you know, definitely. Uh, created rules. (laughs) And uh, I think they've forgiven me. But, um, but I grew up in suburban Detroit. And I was really influenced by the time and place, you know, um, in the 70s and 80s, we saw the rise of the Japanese auto industry, and it it hammered Detroit, um, which had Mm. already been dealing from, you know, race relations, riots in the 60s. And uh, my dad was a dentist. Um, and his practice was in the city of Detroit and his practice was very much, uh, oriented to blue collar workers. And believe me, when they lost their insurance, cause they lost their jobs, they were not going to the dentist. So I think I had a very early perspective on the international impact 
that you would feel, you know, from thousands of miles away. And, you know, specifically the heart, you know, how hard it is to, <laughs> healthcare is hard. I learned that at a very early age and that became formative. And uh, the other international piece that, that I was conscious of growing up in, in the city impacted by, by Japan was when China opened up, you know, that was another um, cause for concern, right? What's gonna happen? Um, how will that affect our jobs? So even though I was very fortunate and had a very comfortable supportive family, you know, we were not too far from seeing what was happening in the communities around us. And, and yeah. that was something that I, that I think I really, um, in retrospect, I know that really sunk into me. Sunk yeah. In. So interesting. You know, uh, I think about my growing up in kind of that same time frame and did not experience or think about things so globally. Everything was just so local. Well, and of course I was in a small town in Colorado. So that, um, you know, you know, changes things, but you know, you being in Detroit, um, wow. So, uh, you know, right on the edge of seeing what, you know, how global the economy really was at the time and how it influenced. So, okay. Yeah. You know, there's one other family influence I'd love to share. Um, you know, I want to acknowledge my mom and, um, my mom was very much typical of her generation. She went to college, but when she met met my dad, she left college to get married because that was what you did. You, you know, you went to college, but if you found the right man, that was more important. And so she got married. They, uh, my dad was sent uh, overseas. And um, so, you know, new, <laughs> new bride, new husband, very naive, very young. All of a sudden she's in Okinawa. Anyway, um, a few years later, she had three children, six and under, um, but she decided she was going to get her degree and she finished when uh, she got her degree when my youngest sister was like, she was nine months pregnant with my youngest sister. But the thing, so there's that modeling, but I'll tell you the thing that really uh, influenced me. And again, I didn't think about it this way at the time, but in retrospect, I can see that while my mother missed, you know, the women's lib movement, right? She was already a full-time homemaker and mom by the time that movement got rolling. But I'll tell you, she was an early subscriber to Ms. Magazine and it was around the house. And I was I was one of those kids, I, I loved reading, I read everything and I read Ms. Magazine. I mean, at 10, what did I really understand, right? Probably not very much, but I think it sunk in. And later um, when it came time to college and graduate school and careers, my mother was a very strong advocate for my, for me and for my sisters. We all have advanced degrees. And she was just like, no, you girls need to do everything I didn't get a chance to do. I want you to study. I want you to travel. I want you to do whatever it is you want to do. And, you know, I, I took all of that to heart. And so I just want to acknowledge that both my birth order and my folks were strong influences. On yeah. Me. Yeah. Well, I love that how you said while she was a homemaker, she was still, but kind of on the leading edge of things, right? Like you say, you know, she subscribed to that magazine, but also then encouraged you all to have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of a different path. So right. very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. That always gives us a little bit of background and insight into, I mean, where did I get here? Yeah. Okay. We're going to shift gears just a little. Uh, introvert or extrovert? You know, it really depends on the context. If if I show up at a professional event, you know, uh, a networking event, I'm definitely more of an introvert. I have to really motivate myself. Okay, you drove here. It took you 30 minutes to get here and park. Like, you got to talk to people. So I'd say I'm more of like a three. If it's a, a dinner party in my home, which my husband and I love to do, then I'm a four or a five. And if it's also... Um, uh, something related to fitness and endurance sports, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Um, then I'm like up, off the charts. Like if I could talk forever to anybody about, you know, fitness and running and training and all that related stuff. So kind of depends on the situation. <laughs> situation, topic, number of people, how yeah. you know them, all that. Yep. Yep. Okay. And, uh, 
on the meter, scale of one to five, one being a couch potato and five being the life of the party, where do you put yourself? Yeah, I, you know, same thing. I think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more of an introvert and it just, it, but if I'm with people that I know and I trust and, and we're doing things that are, that I'm really passionate about, then I can come out of my shell and be a little more lively, but I'm probably more of a low key person. More low key. Okay. And then, uh, this is similar, but sometimes it can be different on the risk meter. Where are you on a scale of one to five? One being uh, you know, low risk taker, five being high risk taker. Yeah, I'd say it's funny. I, I think earlier in in my life and my career, I I was ambitious, very ambitious and and risk and risk loving. You know, there were some decisions I made about graduate school and living and working abroad and moving across the country. I just did it because it was like, that's the right thing. It feels right. I'm going to do it. And then I think I went through uh, maybe the last 10 years of a much more conservative uh, risk avoiding phase because oh, things, even got avoiding. <laughs> things got hard, but I feel like now things have come around a little bit. And, you know, I guess when you decide at 55 to pick up and leave a place you've been for 17 years and move to a new state and Colorado and make make new friends, build new networks. You know, I, I didn't think of it as a risky move at the time, but I suppose you could look at that and say, wow, that's that's that could be pretty scary to make such an abrupt change, such a big change, um, when a lot of people are just kind of coasting into <laughs> their next stage of retirement or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to say you're a 5 then, probably maybe even a 7. Uh living abroad, moving after 17 years. Yeah, I think those are some pretty big risks in, in the family scale. <laughs> okay. Well, and career-wise, so Okay, so well, before we get into if I get here, we need really need to figure out where is here. So, tell us what it's like to be a program leader at a health tech startup company, and then we'll get into the did I get here? Part of your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel so fortunate. I I found this job that is such a great fit for me. Uh, I, I've only been in it a few weeks, um, but it just felt right from the first interview. And that's because I, I've devoted my career to developing marketing and cross-functional leadership operations, product, all of these skills. And this all comes together because really what we do is we provide um, physical, mental health, and social care for people on Medicaid. So um, what I mean is if you can imagine someone um, who has diabetes, but they're on Medicaid, they probably have, they might have food insecurity. So how are they going to get the healthy food? They might have um, they might experience homelessness or domestic violence. They might have transportation issues. You know, you can imagine that it's not just the health issue. It's these related um, social, we call it social care needs they have that help them not only get the, the physical and mental health care they need, but also help them thrive just in their daily living so that they can address their medical needs. So that's what what City Black Health, the company I work for, that's what we do. And my role is to lead cross-functional efforts to figure out what are the programs that will make it easy and attractive for our members to, to engage in our services. Um, because like I said, they've got a lot going on in their lives, right? And, and healthcare, even if it's free, is not always the first thing on their list, though they might desperately need it. So we spend a lot of time thinking about um, what does the program look like? How do we communicate with folks? How do we make them, you know, reduce their fear of the healthcare establishment? Because, you know, we all know, if we didn't know be before the pandemic, we all know now that there are tremendous disparities in the health system in this country. And a lot of these folks have had terrible experiences. So it's building trust and it's getting them to, to want to engage with us so that we can help them improve their health and lead a, lead a ha happier life. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I love how the trend these days seems to be, how do we treat the whole person when you talk about, you know, the medical uh, and the emotional and the mental? I mean, there's, it's, and it's a big part of that, right? And if you have any type of insecurity, uh, it's going to be difficult to reach out to, to ask for help a lot of times. So, exactly. mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Very cool. Well, Amy, I, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, part of what your strengths are is this, you know, cross-functional and marketing and stuff. So was that always in your DNA, so to speak? I mean, when you were a young person, junior high, high school, did you think, oh, one day I'm going to be in a health tech startup? <laughs> or what no. were you thinking you were going to be when you grew up? No. Um, well, when I was young, I, I think I mentioned I was a huge reader. I was one of those kids who read every book in the library in the elementary school. And then, you know, the librarian called up my mom and was like, we don't have anything else for Amy to read. And, and I was, I was um, uh, into creative writing. I went to young authors conferences and such. And so I thought I was going to be a journalist. My folks thought I was going to probably write for the New York times or something, you know, illustrious like that. But I was also a very practical kid. And at some point, I just thought, hmm, well, I don't want to be a broadcast journalist because then I'll be judged on my appearance because that's that early feminist thing. Mm -hmm. And then I don't want to be a print journalist because I don't think they make any money. And that doesn't seem like a good idea. And um, it wasn't until I actually got to college where I did study communications, but then I started to take marketing classes and have internships that exposed me to um, you know, I applied communications, right? Broadcast, you know, cable TV production, radio production, public relations, marketing. And that's where, you know, it clicked. And I realized, oh, okay. So it's business, but it's kind of how you motivate people, how you get them to make decisions, to buy something. And so it just seemed kind of like a nice combination of, of business and communications and psychology and all of that um, came together in marketing. And that was how I decided to follow that path for the first part of my career. Yeah. I love how you summarize that, that it's, it's business, marketing, and communications all wrapped up together. It totally is. Totally. Okay. So then that's what you focused on in college. And what was... Uh... Yeah, and I heard you say grad school. Did you go to grad school then right after, or did you jump into the workforce and then go back? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so by the time I was uh, a junior or senior in college, I I knew that in order to get the kind of marketing position that I wanted, I would need to get an MBA, and I had also decided, well, as long as I'm gonna, and I was gonna work for a couple years first, and I figured, well, as long as I'm gonna give up this, you know, salary position and go back to school, I might as well go for three years, not just two years. <laughs> and I just, and I decided that I wanted to apply to dual degree programs where I could get an MBA and also a master's in Asian studies. See, there's that early influence, right? What, you know, yeah. Americans do not understand Asia, you know, Asia, quote unquote, is even just kind of a funny concept, right? Because it's dozens of countries and cultures and languages and we just think about Asia, right? So, so by the time I was a senior, I knew I wanted to do a dual degree program. And I wanted to, my plan was to work for a multinational in marketing for a few years here and then get an international assignment. And so I was fortunate. I got into University of Michigan, which had uh, one of the very few dual degrees in Asian studies and business. And um, <laughs> I, I had I had to actually, you know, this is a, yeah, I'm a real partier. I graduated from college and instead of, you know, hanging out or touring Europe or doing something fun, I had to take intro to Chinese so that I could start at Michigan because you couldn't enter this dual degree program unless you had some background in the language. <laughs> oh, so wow. French for a million years. I had studied Spanish, but no, I decided I wanted to learn Chinese. So um, anyway, I, I went to Michigan for that dual degree program. And, and, and that was so formative, um, had wonderful advisors, uh, a woman uh, I'm still in touch with today, who helped me understand that 
Asia was more than China and Japan. And, you know, remember this was the era of the, the, the tigers, right? Hong Kong, Taiwan, Malaysia, Thailand, right? And she really educated me about the opportunities in Southeast Asia as well. And so um, I was fortunate while I was in school, I did, I got grant funding to do master's research in the field and did primary research in Taiwan and Indonesia and Malaysia and wrote a thesis and got my MBA and um, was very fortunate that I was able to then move into brand management um, initially with, with Procter & Gamble. But I, you know, I know you like to, you, you want us to share some of the, the bumps in the road. And um, I can share that when I was an undergrad at Northwestern, um, you know, I was all like, hey, I'm a good student. I'm at this great school. I'm going to interview through the placement center and I am going to get a job with Leo Burnett or some other Chicago, Michigan Avenue, you know, blue chip ad agency. And I didn't, it didn't work out. I, you know, wow. I, I have no idea what I, you know, what I was missing, but I didn't get a job. And I ended up <laughs> finding my first job out of college through a little ad in the back of Adweek magazine for an account manager for a, what now we would call a startup agency. It was a new agency founded by a veteran who was launching his own shop. And our first month, um, Kathy, we were in his basement in this far-flung Chicago suburb, which was a very far cry from a high-rise in Michigan Avenue. So that was a good learning experience. But, you know, it, it gave me a great view of all roles of advertising and marketing. And, you know, I was a, I was on the front line with clients, which I don't know that I would have had that experience in a big agency. But anyway, so that was my first um you know, your first, your first job. <laughs> yeah. First, well, the first time, yeah. Oh, I have this grand plan and it's just going to work. Right. And yeah. then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, why isn't it working? You know, we have these plans and it's, you know, right. either it's not the right timing or just, you know, yeah, there's always, you know, something that can happen. Right. But then I, I did, I did have um, a, a little moment of vindication because, you know, at, at the time, I don't know if this still happens. Um, a lot of companies would come and recruit at Michigan Business School. And uh, sometimes they would invite you to come to their reception, et cetera. And I remember that Leo Burnett invited me to their reception. And I said, no, thank you. I'm gonna work for your biggest client. And that was you know, the, the, when I decided to, I had the opportunity to work for Procter & Gamble in brand management, which was really what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that had to feel good. <laughs> It was it was short lived because it turned out what I learned another little bump in the road that I loved brand management, but I did not like Procter and Gamble and I did not like Cincinnati. And you know, again, at the time, I didn't realize that it, that how important corporate cultures are and finding your fit. I just knew that I didn't fit there, and so I ended up leaving there. Um, a short version of the personal angle is while I was in grad school, I met the man who would become my husband. He has the same background, an MBA and master's of Asian studies. And he was very clear, we need to get to Asia. And so um, the first stop was actually a job that he got in California with Dole Foods. I went with him. We ended up getting married. I got a job at Dole Foods and that was brand management, but in, in a culture that was just night and day from Proctor. It was friendly. There were a lot of women. It was relaxed. I mean, it was Southern California, right? And I was working on healthy snacks, doles, raisins, and dried fruits and nuts. So here I am at 27. I'm managing a $70 million P&L, and I'm loving it. it. It was, I really found the fit in terms of the role and the culture. And so that gave me a new benchmark in my head for, oh, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> and, and that was a really wonderful experience. I mean, all these years later, I'm still very good friends with some of the women I worked with in marketing at, at Dole Foods. Yeah. Isn't it amazing when you find that right fit, how great it feels? And then when, then when you look back on how hard it was in the other bad fit, you know, it's just, 
and you just wonder how do people survive in that bad fit? But you know, for them, maybe it's a fit, right? But it just wasn't for you. It was night and day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So did you end up getting to Asia then? And actually, you lived abroad, you said, is that where, you know, the next yep, step? I did. I did. So it was very funny, you know, this dates myself. This was before, before we really had, the internet was just getting rolling and there was a little bit of email, but, you know, you still had to send resumes by snail mail. And so I remember um, we, we got married and my husband and I both started, you know, so we're both working for multi adult food company in Los Angeles and we're sending out all these letters and we're trying to network through our alumni group. We are getting nowhere. And then um, we went back to Detroit for my sister's wedding. My middle sister got married the year after we did. And my husband called up an old boss and he said, I'm, I'm going to be in Detroit. You know, do you want to have lunch? And the guy said, lunch, hell, do you want to work for me in Asia? And that was how we got to Singapore. And so, um, yeah, another lesson, like sometimes it's a it's personal connection. connection, easy peasy, not hundreds of letters and emails. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we landed in Singapore and, um, you know, I had to leave Dole Foods behind, but, but I knew this was the right thing. And uh, I guess another transition was I, I thought, well, I will just find another consumer packaged goods role. That's what I've been doing for a few years. I'm good at it. Well, that's where I ran into some cultural challenges. I mean, to be honest, I certainly could have done the job, but you know, the hiring managers looked at me and they said, why do we want to hire an American to sell cosmetics or household goods to Singaporeans or Malaysians? Like, no, that's not going to work. So, I, you know, again, I'm reading, you know, trade magazines. And I think this one might have been ad age <laughs> and uh, or age, some Asian marketing publication. And I see Intel is looking for consumer marketing, a consumer marketing manager. And I, and and this is a little bit of irony. Uh, Intel was a huge recruiter at University of Michigan Business School. And I distinctly remember when they had their presentation, I said, ah, I would never go to that technology. That sounds so boring. I wouldn't want to do that. So I ignored them. And then, you know, but they had this job and I thought, well, what the heck? I'll go talk to them. And and I was very upfront. I said, I use a Mac at home. I don't know what a processor is. I'm not an engineer. And they're like, that's okay. We've got a building full of engineers. And now what we're trying to do is build the Intel brand in the region. And we need consumers to understand why Intel inside is important. And they, they decided that I was a great fit. And, and it, it was really wonderful. So for five years... I was um, working out of Singapore and then I was in Hong Kong for part of that time, but I always had a regional role. And this was where I got to use my marketing and my international perspective, a little bit of my language skills. And I also learned that I, I had an affinity for people management. Um, I, know, I know you've done a lot of um, self-development, professional development, so you appreciate this. I, I had an opportunity, Intel, I will be so grateful for the investment they made in their people. I, I was invited to go to a managing through people course and you know, it was a week away and I got all this training and then I had a team and it was really wonderful. Um, again, this was the early days of digital marketing and I was very fortunate to have some very smart uh, folks working with me in the local markets and also some wonderful agency partners. And we just decided to try new technologies, you know, and let's try digital ads. Let's try different types of formats. And, you know, now it's, it's you don't even think about it, right? And there, the, all these ads are so pervasive, they're annoying as anything. But at the time it was new and fresh and, and um, I learned a ton and I'm very proud of the fact that together with my extended team and a lot of other folks in Intel Asia Pacific, we made, we made Intel the number one consumer tech brand in the region. And, and it was number seven in the world, but in Asia, it had a particular affinity 
uh, with with the local markets there. So that was a pretty fantastic experience. Yeah, what a great achievement. Wow. And it sounds like that must have been a good culture fit, too, that they allowed you a lot of autonomy. Like you were saying, we got to try all these new things. So back to your risk taking back, you know, it was a good fit for you back then, too, because you were a big risk taker. And oh, and I think um, I think it had to do with the fact that, you know, you know, the Chinese have a saying the emperor, the sky is high and the emperor is far away or something like that. And that that was that was kind of the the feeling, you know headquarters was off in Silicon Valley and they were very rigid and they tried to dictate everything, but we were in the region and, and my role in, as the regional manager was to kind of negotiate between the rigidity of headquarters and the freewheeling, you know, let's just do anything in the markets. And, you know, headquarters was too um, US centric and the markets were a little too freewheeling. And, you know, so it was part of my role to kind of meet, help everybody meet in the middle so that we could take the best of both dynamics and bring it all together. And so, yeah, it, uh, I was able to take a lot more risks with my teams being in the regions than some of my colleagues in headquarters. And wow. eventually I ended up going back to the U.S. and working in Intel's headquarters and and I there I saw firsthand on one hand it was a, a kick and a rush to shape global strategy but at the same time it was a lot less creative and freewheeling than the experience we had the closer you get to the mothership right <laughs> that's exactly right yeah so how did this this is your first leadership role it sounds like how did you find Kind of your leadership style or confidence, you know, sometimes when it's your first one and it's a big one like this, how did you, did you have a mentor or, you know, a great team or how do you think you, you were able to step in there? You just have this natural confidence, you know what to do. So I think it was a couple of things. One, I, like I said, I, I will always be grateful for that week long course that gave me some tools and also Intel at this time had such a strong culture that, um, you know, it was what was a true accomplishment. I think one of Andy Grove's formidable accomplishments was he created a culture that was mirrored everywhere around the world. So if you went to Intel in Bangkok, in Santa Clara, in Japan, I mean, they somehow attracted people in these countries who fit with that American kind of Silicon Valley culture. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I was in meetings where people would hold up the badge on their lanyard and they'd say, you're not following the, you know, this principle. And we held each other accountable. So I think having that cultural language was a support. And then the third thing was, I, I think where my, um, aptitude, if I can call it that, for leadership, it, it comes from my years as an athlete. And I didn't think of it this way at the time, but I've always been a player coach. I've always wanted to help other people achieve their best, either in, you know, athletics or in the workplace. But also, I'm the another also a person who will always roll up her sleeves and, and do what needs to be done. So, so I think, um, that started to come out professionally, but it's rooted in all the years I spent as a competitive athlete. Yeah, started as older sister probably. Yeah, that And too. then as an athlete, uh, <laughs> but because I'm just, it was occurring to me that you're not only new to leaders, but most of the people who you re reported to you probably didn't speak English or weren't American, right? So here you are kind of the American in charge. That, that's yeah. gotta be a tough role. You know, um, well, like I said, the company culture eased the way and, and, you know, there was a selection bias, right? Um, you really didn't get hired to work in some of the, my team was hired into roles where you really had to have English language competency. So, so I could speak, I could speak some Chinese, I could speak some Indonesian, but I wasn't fluent and they were very fluent in English. So, but the thing is when I think, you know, and probably many of your listeners know, when you study a language, you also learn a lot about the culture. And so I think as long as I 
kept all the cultural principles and the historical things I had learned in grad school in mind, I was able to build relationships cross-culturally. Um, and, you know, and, and like I said, so we didn't have language barriers. We had the company culture going for us and then just trying to, you know, get to know people. I mean, I, for a few years, I was paid to go hang out with super smart marketing people in Jakarta, in Sydney, in Bangalore. I mean, they taught me what their markets were like and what they needed. And so I was mostly in listening mode and then, you know, coaching when it came time to implement programs. But, you know, it was very much a listen and learn and support and together we can pull it off kind of thing. Ah, I like that. Listen and learn. Yeah. Because if you go in listening first, right, and not spouting, uh, you get a lot more, um, uh, I don't even want to say the words buy-in. You get just a lot more. It's it's about likability. It's about you valued me. You asked me what I thought. You asked me what I'm doing. You know, it's different than uh, you coming in and telling me what I should be doing, right? Which And you don't even know what I'm doing, right? It's very, it's funny how companies do that, right? So many, so many companies and leaders do that, that, you know, they feel like they have to have that direction or that vision when really it is about listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And leading, so. Okay, cool. Well, okay, so. You're then uh, living abroad. What uh, what brought you back to the U.S. then? Yeah, you know, after uh, 9-11, um, I, it just affected me. Um, you know, who could predict, right, that, that yep. event or how it would affect us? And I just felt a strong desire to be back in the U.S. And so I did get the transfer to headquarters and spent a few more years with Intel in the headquarters um, had the opportunity to work on some really amazing initiatives there. But I got to the point after a few years where I, I kind of realized I'm, I don't, I want to have more impact. I want to make more of a difference. I'm not going to be, I can't move, make Intel, uh, move Intel from number seven brand in the world to number six. Now I can't drop it to number 10 either, but yeah. I was anxious to, um, see what I could do in a smaller environment. You know, startups were raging all around and I wanted a little piece of that action. So I, I left Intel and it's funny, I, I, I talk about how I intentionally downsized. I went from this, you know, $40 billion company to a $1 billion company, which is still pretty darn big. I was just saying still 1 billion, I mean, that's. <laughs> but even so, it was the first time where you know, I got there and I said, okay. And I was uh, director of global brand marketing. Um, and I said, okay, where's my market research team? Mm, you don't have one. It's, it's you. What about this? What about that? And I, even though it was a big company, it didn't have that level of resources and it forced me to become very entrepreneurial and very creative and to really roll up my sleeves even in a new way and say, all right, well, I guess I'm, I'm going to become the an expert in doing different types of market research and competitive analysis and, you know, various things that in a big, bigger company, you were able to delegate or, you know, collaborate with focused teams. Yeah. So I learned a lot there. And, um, you know, then after the uh, 2008 crash, they they had a huge layoff so i was i was let go because it's like well we don't have any money for marketing so we're not we don't see why we should keep you and um yeah that was hard and yeah. um i ended up getting actually one of one of the most amazing opportunities of my career my first vp role was with um a, a public a, a newly public company that was about a 500 million dollar revenue company and they were a pioneer in web analytics. And so I was um, hired as a VP of corporate marketing and that was a fairly new role. I had an enormous team, uh, more than 20 people. That was a big step for me. And I was just thrilled to finally get out of hardware and get into the software SaaS side of the business because that was what was booming, right? We could all see the writing. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful for about, Four months and it was um, based out of um, um, the Salt Lake City area and so my husband and I were thrilled we wanted to leave Silicon Valley and we were going to live in Park City and I found us a place we were all set 
And then Adobe acquired this company and everything changed. And I didn't actually, I didn't have a role when the dust settled. And it's ironic because Adobe's headquarters um, was like two miles from where I lived in San Jose. I mean, I could look out my window and see the tower and, <clears throat> but there just wasn't any room at the inn. And so, um, you know, had a, a, a series, a couple of other corporate jobs that were basically just, all right, I need, just need to, you know, stay employed, get a paycheck, keep learning. And um, finally got to try uh, a startup. And that was, that was, that was a great experience, but also ended very turbulently. And um, I did try a stint as a consultant because I got to the point where I said, I cannot be at the whim of other people and all these, you know, unforeseeable events. So I'm going to control my destiny. And it worked out okay. I, I would say I did all right. Um, but I really missed being part of a team. I liked being the trusted advisor. I liked the fact that people would come to me and they'd tell me all this stuff and because they knew I was a safe harbor. But I missed being part of a team. And eventually I got I got another opportunity to return to the corporate world. And this time, this was my first um, foray into health technology. Um, I had been using um, fitness tech for many years, right? I had a Garmin and all these other things to measure my, my performance while I was training. Um, but I started to realize, oh, this is becoming a mainstream thing. You know, Fitbit was, was becoming um, yeah. a popular item, right? A household item. Mm -hmm. um, was moving beyond the athletes, et cetera. And so I was fortunate to be able to run marketing and product for Nokia as they launched their um, new venture in health. And so it was only two years, but um, that really introduced me to so many concepts that I then took forward into other digital health and health tech businesses, like, you know, kind of the intersection of business and technology and the clinical um, clinical outcomes, we like to say, right? Um, how do you make a difference? So people aren't just, you know, to use the Fitbit example, you're not just counting steps, but you really want to know, am I getting healthier? Am I improving my cardiovascular fitness? And that's what we were working on. So that was great for a couple of years until Nokia's board in Finland decided they didn't actually want to be in that business. So that fell apart. <laughs> and um, again, those big corporate decisions, right? And strategies, yeah. they, they affect us. Yeah. Yeah. It was, there was this crazy uh, merger with a French health tech company and then they moved all the jobs to Paris and that didn't work out anyway. So yeah. So there were a couple more health tech startups where I learned a lot, met wonderful people, built a wonderful network of very smart people trying to make a difference with our horrible, messed up healthcare system. Um, and, you know, eventually I, it got to be 2019 and um, I was working in diabetes tech and that was very exciting, but, you know, we still really wanted to leave Silicon Valley. Um, the, the Adobe thing blew up. That was, uh, that was 20, 2009. And so here it was 10 years later. And we finally just put the stake in the ground and said, we're moving. It's either Seattle or Denver. We chose Denver because it was much sunnier. <laughs> and and, choice. Uh, choice. and and it's a wonderful place. I had come to here for business for some health tech conferences and just love the community. So started interviewing here, found the job at 365 Health, a um, preventive health nonprofit, was hired to lead their digital health, uh, or rather their, yeah, their digital health transformation, which um, I started in January of 2020. We all know what happened a couple months yeah. later. Oh, geez, timing. Up, yeah, it was crazy. Um, ended up running a telehealth business uh, targeted to underserved communities. And um, that was really, I, I consider that really my, you know, my, my post, postdoc, postgrad education in, in health equity and what it really means to deliver care to people um, who, who are so disadvantaged and maybe uninsured or underinsured. And, and so that really set me up for the work that I'm doing now. So uh, that was a, a rough, you know, it was 
I don't think I was a great fit with the nonprofit sector. I think mission-driven for-profit is a better fit for me, but I will always be grateful for everything I learned about um, serving diverse communities and health equity and social the social determinants of health that have such an impact um, because of that experience. Yeah, wow. Wow, that's that's so interesting how all of those things came together and you had to keep pivoting within that same organization, right? Because the world was changing so fast. And, uh, and you know, what you learned in that, though, and what was probably so helpful for you, but also for them, um, all that you were learning as you went. Yeah, and one more little nugget. Um, I, I, I smile because I never expected this, but it was really kind of cool. Um, talk about unexpected connections. So I talked about the dynamic that, that I experienced when I was in Asia, kind of negotiating between headquarters and the markets. And so here I am interviewing with CityBlock for my current job. And one of the leaders that I was interviewing with starts to tell me, well, you know, we've got all this tension because we've got these, you know, we're, we've got headquarters, but then we've got the markets and the markets all think they're special and they all want to do it different. And I, I just started smiling. I'm like, actually, I have experienced <laughs> this dynamic. And we talked about it. And you know what? It was not that different, you know? Um, it was very gratifying to me to be able to draw on that skill set from, you know, way back in yeah. this temporary right. setting. Which when you think about most businesses, right, what headquarters wants in this centralization model and what the local and divisional level uh, operates on the front lines, you know, many times it's very different, right? And how do you find that right balance yeah. uh, to where you can leverage that kind of shared services environment and all that, right? As well as then leverage the the knowledge on the ground and the, the nimbleness that you need to launch and all of that. So, wow. Well, Amy, I, I could just keep talking to you all afternoon, uh, but we do need to start wrapping up. So um, now that we're, where are you now? So this is so cool to hear how did I get here? Uh, tell us, looking back, what do you think served you best when you look at, you know, either it's a personality trait, a characteristic, or maybe a strength or a discipline? What do you think served you best in your career? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the the, the player coach analogy. I I think that's that's what I call it but I think that's what people have responded to um, the ability to, to become a subject matter expert and do the work, but also to facilitate excellence in others. And that, that brings me a lot of joy. Um, you know, maybe it's that latent big sister quality. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but, but, you know, nurturing people's talents so that they can do their best work. Um, that's something that I rely on. And also, um, it's funny, I was just talking recently to a college roommate and, and, and she, she said, oh, you've always been so resourceful. And what prompted that was, um, I'm not a people connector, but I connect maybe people and ideas. And she was talking, she's, she's got a business and she was talking about how she's going to have to pivot and she's not sure what to do. And I said, well, you know, I just went to this workshop and I think this would be really interesting for you. And I'm going to introduce you to the guy who ran the workshop because I think you might want to, you know, get involved with this business. And, and, and that, that was what prompted her to say, you know, that is you. And so I think that's something that also gives me a lot of satisfaction and pleasure is to get to know people and say, hmm, you know, have you thought about this or have you heard this? podcast, or maybe you should go to this conference, you know, just to try to help people connect the dots. Because yeah. that's how the great works. And I like to share that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it goes back to though, you have to listen first, right? Yes. You have to be listening to what's going on with them. And then all these things flood into your mind, probably about, oh, well, I, this reminds me, this occurred for me, and that happened, and this could be helpful. And yeah, so, wow, very cool. I have kind of that similar trait in terms of connecting people and ideas and dots and which is why I love doing this podcast is I get to see it all right how it all how everybody's path works out so 
Okay, so last question. Any words of wisdom that really helped you when you were stuck or that impacted you in your career? Uh, you know, I, I can't identify, um, I think it was more actions than, than words that, that influenced me. And, and I think, I think the, any, the, the wisdom that I would share uh, at this point is don't, don't worry about ticking boxes. I think early in my career, I was very, um, you know, very adamant. I've got to read the right books and go to the right conferences and, you know, get the right experiences and, tick this box and tick this box. I'm a manager, I'm a senior manager, I'm a director, a senior director, a VP, like, and I, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to think about it. And uh, so, you know, I, I think don't worry about ticking boxes. And, and for me, when people kind of looked beyond the, the tick boxes and just said, I know you, Amy, I know you from this context or that context, and I'm going to hire you for this role because I just think you're the right person and you'll figure it out. That's, that's a gift that I've been given. And, and I would um, hope that others, you know, thinking about their career and architecting their career would have the opportunity to be evaluated for their whole person and not just, you know, evaluated based on the line items in their resume. Yeah. Which is why referrals are so important, right? Versus the resume, especially with today's technology where they, you know, everything's screened digitally, right? Through so you gotta have the right words on your resume. So the right boxes marked, right? But it's really getting in the door is that just have that interview and then, and vouch for someone who's a credible source. Wow, so important, so important. So work those networks, work those relationships, very important. Well, Amy, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was a delight to get to know you better. We've uh, you know crossed paths so many times at uh, different events, but this was really, really delightful. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Kathy. I really enjoyed it as well. And um, yeah, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. All right. Well, listeners, if you enjoyed today's interview, please subscribe below so that you'll be alerted for other interviews as they're published. And if you have any questions for me or for Amy, I will publish this interview on my website, lifestorycurator.com. And Amy, are you okay if I publish your uh, LinkedIn connections oh, if folks wanted to get in touch with you? Okay. And then if you wanted to get in touch with Amy, you never know who might be thinking about a tech startup and uh, or branding or what have you. I might want to just talk with you more. So on that note, I will say stay safe, stay well, and let's keep sharing those stories. Have a great day.